Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures. And we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. All right. Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Uh, I am actually sitting in Ridgeway, Colorado, in a mountain cabin in the San Juan Mountains in Uray County, doing some writing and getting ready to, uh, uh, actually I'll do some ice climbing and some cross-country snow skiing a little bit too. And I am so excited to uh, introduce you to a new person that we recently just met last September at Theology Beer Camp in Springfield, Missouri. And it is Aaron Simmons. And uh, I was so excited to go to Theology Beer Camp, this progressive Christian crowd, you know, of, of folks, and find a fellow mountain biker and outdoor adventurer. And he had a new book out called Camping with Kierkegaard. And I was so blessed he even signed it for me. So you, you gave me this copy and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. So Aaron, thank you for being on Spirituality Adventures. Welcome. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. It was great to meet you there in Springfield. And everybody should know, like, yeah, I gave him that copy because he walks up and says, hey, that Sprinter van out back with the uh, mountain bike on the back of its mind. I was like, dude, free book to you. So yeah, it, it turns out it's not a high bar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but Aaron is a philosopher, a fisherman, a fly fisherman with, you know, mountain biker, husband, father, award-winning teacher, internationally recognized scholar. I mean, I'm just honored to be talking with you. He runs a YouTube channel called Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves, and is the former president of Soren Kierkegaard Society, and uh, well-respected, teaches at Furman University now, right? That's right, yeah, in yeah. South Carolina, Greenville, South in Carolina. South Carolina, so man. Yeah, man. Well, I, the, the, the bio is always this um, work of creative fiction. It's like, you know, how, how can I say a bunch of boring things in ways that people might find impressive? Uh, but yeah, I've been a, a, a professional philosopher for oh, 20 plus years now and have written, I don't know, 11, 12 unreadable academic tomes. And when COVID hit, my life switched like everybody's did. Uh, suddenly it was like, well, how do I navigate a world that's broken and I can't get to the office and I can't do what I normally do. 
And so I took my son to the mountains and we fished and biked and hiked and camped and had an absolute amazing time, despite the trauma that was so real for so many people. And this book is the result of not just those experiences, but it's a result of my fundamentally rethinking the way I had been living and came to realize there's got to be a way to live that lets joy be a little bit more present. And so that's what this book is. It's written for everybody. It's not, I mean, it's certainly a, a book of philosophy, but it's not written for philosophers. Yeah. I mean, I got through it. So that gives everybody else some hope. Right. So, <laughs> My wife always tells me, make sure you tell people, even if they don't like the mountains, they'll still like the book. So my wife yeah. is a beach person. She still thinks that it's worth reading. So, yeah. And for my end, even if even if you're not a, a deep, you know, like I like I'm more of a theologian than a philosopher. Right. But mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, uh, I could I got through it. So, um, yeah, it's good stuff. It. Loved it. So let's give just a, a few minutes about your, your background. Where did, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Give us a little bit of your family, you know, or your family of origin, faith background, that kind of thing. Just give us a little yeah. thumbnail of your origin story. And then I want to jump into your book, by the way. So, Sounds yeah. good. Well, and in yeah. some ways, these two questions are, are, are tag teamed, right? I mean, this book is in many ways a story not just about my origins, but about the hopes for my future, um, which are anchored in, you know, how I became the person that I, I am for better or worse. So I was, I'm 46, was born in 1977 in Cleveland, Tennessee, as we all say, you know, the other Cleveland. And my dad was a <laughs> professor of art and art history at Lee University. My mom was an educator. I'm the oldest of four kids. And basically when I was seven, eight years old, uh, my sister got diagnosed with cancer. And so we ended up moving to South Florida in Tampa, Florida, and spent most of my like growing up years there. So from eight to 18 uh, was in Tampa, Florida, shifted from, you know, fishing the Hiawassee River with my dad when I was six and seven to now playing beach volleyball with friends in junior high, you know, so it was definitely a shift in all sorts of ways. But we went there for treatment for my sister, but then also because all of my extended family lived there. So my grandparents on both sides, lots of aunts and uncles, cousins. So there was a huge support structure. So we moved there to Tampa. My sister's fine, by the way. She's now a professor of religious studies at University of Alabama. But when we um, were there, I, I can say hands down the most significant thing about my memories from eight to 18 is my involvement in church and the ability to be um, someone who has a history of the church that isn't defined by trauma and difficulty and frustration. I realize that that's increasingly rare in, yeah. in the, the world, um, but mine isn't. I, I was in a very big uh, multicultural, interesting church. It was a Pentecostal community. Um, and I, I, I think the reason that I'm still easily able to say I identify as a Christian, even I still identify as a Pentecostal is because my grandfather and grandmother on my mom's side were both pastors. And 
they were both retired at this time, but like we would be at church and hear something in the sermon. And then we'd always end up at grandma and grandpa's house that afternoon for lunch and whatever. And I was just a kid, but I remember as a kid, my grandpa, like, you know, taking out the Greek lexicon to double check what the pastor had said that morning. Right. And this was not because he had some big, long education. You know, I think he'd only gone like eighth or ninth grade. It was because he took so seriously the life of the mind as part of what the life of faith required. And so my parents were professors. My grandfather was a pastor, um, but it wasn't because of this deep educational heritage. It was because I was surrounded by thinkers who took God talk to be compelling talk, right? Mm. Like this is a thing we can think through. So I grew up in the church, um, went to Lee University where my dad had been a professor when I went to college, Christian college. Uh, when I was a junior, my dad actually got hired back as a professor, um, kind of the tail end of his career. And so he moved back up. Um, I graduated there with a degree in history and minors in religion and literature, went to Florida State University to be a Seminoles fan, got a master's in intellectual history at Florida State, and then went up to Vanderbilt and did a master's and PhD in philosophy. Um, through all of this, my faith journey has been one of, um, I, I definitely shifted from as a kid, it was always intellectually compelling and interesting, but it was also... I didn't know anything else, right? I grew up swimming in this water. Um, I wasn't able to make sense of it as an option. It was just the case. It was just the truth. This is just where I was. And then I got to grad school because, of course, went to college where that remained the case. Everybody at the school still kind of just assumed Christianity. But what was so weird is when I was in college, I started realizing that Christianity became hard for me because it was so assumed that I started realizing, yeah, but like that dude's an asshole. You're like, how, it, what does it mean for that guy to still be a Christian? Or wait a minute, but but you're Catholic or Presbyterian or Orthodox. It was like all these different varieties of what it meant. And so suddenly what was just assumed became complex. And then I got to grad school and what was made complex in college now became um, contested in grad school. And so when I was in grad school, that's where I started reading a lot of existential philosophy, got really into objections to theism, and it was becoming a specialist in philosophy of religion, not to defend my Christian faith, but to say, hey, I want to spend my life thinking about the stuff that I think is worth living for. Mm -hmm. And if I think Christianity matters and this stuff is true, I want to be the best in the game at what it looks like to understand why people reject this. And so in that process, I never walked away from my faith, but it has certainly morphed and twisted and become more dynamic. Specific doctrines that I used to hold, I hold very differently now. But the way I would probably summarize it is um, with a PhD in philosophy, a specialist in philosophy of religion, Christianity is not hard for me. The church is nearly impossible. <laughs> and so... That's kind of where I find myself today. I'm still part of a, a Assemblies of God Church in Greenville, South Carolina. I have an amazing pastor. They love us. They welcome us. Um, but it definitely is hard in a kind of broader cultural sense 
to remain a Pentecostal, given that I'm a postmodern progressive philosopher, right? Those don't tend to morph real well together. Yeah. Wow. I would probably say um, the church, and even though I'm pastoring, (laughs) is challenging. (laughs) And I I would even say Christianity as a thing is challenging, you know. Um, But Jesus is really, I'm... (laughs) Yeah. I'm all in on Jesus. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I get that. I, get I mean, and, I get and for me, the thought is it's more a kind of Dietrich Bonhoeffer idea where he says at one point um, <laughs> that when it's a fascinating claim, he writes this, um, I think it's an ethics, but he says that one of the places where he almost never mentions God is around Christians, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And he says that, of course, this is one of the great German theologians, the great Protestant theologian, the martyr in in many ways of of 20th century Christianity died at the hands of National Socialism. And he says this because he goes on to explain, because what God means when I'm around, quote unquote, Christians, isn't what I mean by God, right? In other words, it doesn't look like the Jesus I hope God is. (laughs) And so he says, I've just decided it's not worth talking about God in those spaces because we're just going to misunderstand each other and I'm just going to be disappointed in them. (laughs) And that's kind of how I feel about when I say the church is hard for me. Uh, I don't mean it because I've deconstructed in my faith in a technical sense. I take seriously people who have. And because I take them seriously, I don't ever want to confuse what I do with what they do. Right. These are two different kinds of experiences. I don't share that trauma. I instead share a disappointment, a frustration, a um, an agonizing uh, concern that the Christian life I was taught to lead as a kid is something I'm still trying to take seriously, which has put me at odds with so many of the churches that taught it to me. And gotcha. that, I think, is really tricky. Yeah, yeah. So let's let, let's jump into your book here. Um, I, I and great job, by the way. I love it. What is so Appreciate the first it. chapter? What is worthy of your finitude? Which is the question that you drive through the whole book. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but in in the opening chapter around that question, you define faith, and um, I, I want to chat a little bit about that, and then. And then you also had that little piece in there about assholes, <laughs> which, which I really liked yeah. on the first chapter. But uh, yeah, you, yeah, let's talk. You know, I had a, I had a mentor um, when I was, was first in the vineyard named John Wimber. And uh, one of John, John had a lot of sayings, you know, that would stick in your brain. But one of his was faith is spelled R-I-S-K. That is a Wimberism. And I, I mean, it. so I have, I have borrowed his, that uh, like through the years. And so then I, you know, yeah. I'm bumping into your book here. So talk about your definition of faith. Yeah. I, I define faith simply as risk with direction. And the reason that I say this, and to be honest, like I actually don't even remember the first time that definition hit me. Um, but I know it was in a class, as most of, to be honest, the ideas that I have, probably I came up spontaneously teaching philosophy over 20 years, and they kind of, like, oh, I like the way that sounds. You're sort of saying stuff and hearing yourself say it, and you're like, I should come back and think about that. 
And so years ago, I remember saying, you know, by faith, let's just think about it like risk with direction. And I just sort of hand wavingly threw that out there. But as I thought and reflected and wrestled and then navigated the the world shattering events of 2020 and the continued frustration and despair felt by so many in light of injustice and historical marginalization and on and on, I thought, you know, we've got to rethink faith as not a religious commitment. And this is not an original idea. This is what Jean-Paul Sartre had said. Sartre says at one point, we've got to understand faith as an existential facet of human life. And so he says, there are two options. You are either in good faith or you're in bad faith. And what he means by this is, and we would say you are either faithful or faithless, right, is effectively what he's giving us as options. And what he means is not you are either a theist or you're an atheist. Sartre's absolutely a committed atheist, but he's defending the importance of faith. Mm. And he does because he says faith is, good faith, is being conscious and aware that where you stand is not the only option. In other words, this is a, a sexy way of saying, are you realizing that you live on purpose and that purpose is chosen daily, momentarily by you? Are you good with where you are? Yeah. And that is why bad faith is not atheism. Bad faith is acting as if the world reality is just obvious. That's just the way things are. There's nothing I can do about it. Here I am. Shut down the questions. That's the thing he wants to avoid. So risk with direction is simply my version of risk means you might be wrong. There might be a better place to stand. You, this might go badly. But are you standing there on purpose, realizing that there's a direction to the propulsion of your life and you're OK with that direction, even if it goes badly? It's the same thing if you're going to be ice climbing, which I do not do, or mountain biking or hiking. Like you can't mountain bike and decide, you know what? I think I'll just close my eyes because direction <laughs> doesn't matter. Like the risk is still there. But unless you're purposively saying, I'm going that way and I'm going to go off the rock with this kind of force, you made that risk overwhelming. But instead, if you say the risk is real, but I know that if I throw myself that direction with this kind of intentionality and then control my body, keep the bike under me, it still might go bad, right? Hospitals are full of people who... I thought I had that jump, but it is also the case that if we do the best we can in a direction we think matters, the risk now is not stifling. It's the condition of living. And that's what I'm trying to remind people. You don't have to be a mountain biker. You want to be an entrepreneur. Cool. You know what? There are 70,000 businesses you could have started. Why this one? You want to be a physician. Awesome. Why a physician instead of an attorney? You don't want to go to college. Fantastic. Are you, what is it you're doing and why do you think it matters? And are, is it something that you want to keep doing at 50? Like these questions are human questions and faith is not opposed to faithless. Faith is opposed to thinking that I am a box checking machine. 
if I can just get enough, I will be successful and everybody will fall at my feet and praise my abilities. I'm suggesting, nope, let's be faithful and realize we are still on the trail, still navigating the rocks, no matter how old we are, no matter how successful you've been, you are not defined by your successes. And no matter how many failures mark your history, you are not wrecked by those failures. That's logistics. Mm. So let's get good at logistics. You want to be an attorney? Go to law school. Like <coughs> logistics matter, but let's do logistics rather than letting them name our very identity and value. That's faith for me. Good stuff. So humility is something that you um, mention regularly throughout the whole book as an important ingredient to this life lived with faith, risk, and direction. And in your first chapter, you talk about humility as hard work. And then you also have that little aside on assholes. So give us what's your definition of humility? And then you borrowed a friend's definition of assholes. Yeah. Uh, and why yeah. is that? Why are those two things important to this journey of risk with direction? <clears throat> yeah, no, it's a great question. So the reason humility is so important is you, you can think of it in a variety of ways. A, uh, I talk about philo- uh, humility because I'm a philosopher. Socrates says at the beginning of you know the history of Western philosophy that we often teach, he suggests that unless we are aware that we don't have it all figured out, we aren't much good, right? Like it, it's only because I don't know it all that I might be worth something, says Socrates. So philosophy begins in a kind of humility because it propels us to want to be curious, to want to question, to want to seek truth. You can't seek truth if you think you've already got truth handled, wrapped up, right, in your back pocket. So A, it's what allows us to do the work of thinking well. B, if we think we've got it all figured out, we are now radically closed to the future as possible. In other words, if we've got it all figured out, we're already doing the best thing. We're already, you know, in in possession of everything that matters. So we don't relate to the rest of our life as this question mark that we get to think through. We relate to it as handed over under the guise of obviousness. So humility not only reminds us that we don't have it all figured out, it reminds us that there is still a future depending on us to make it. And then third, humility is radically important because it's what propels us into relationships with others. So I talk in the book about there being two hallmarks of the human condition. We are vulnerable. That's the risk side. And in other words, we're going to die, right? So what's worthy of your finitude? Because you're going to die, how are you going to spend the time you have? Like, that's the question. So we are risky, we are vulnerable, but we are also relational. And the reason we are relational is why direction matters, right? I am in relation to the direction of my forward momentum. And the point is, I'm never doing this on my own. The way I choose to live my life impacts the possible futures for others. So when I am humble, I cultivate an awareness that I need you. 
it's it gets me out of my self-sufficiency and it says not only do i need you to point out where i'm going wrong right as we all have had happen on the trails of life and also literally on the trails yeah what why is it that uh if if we're going west it seems like we're uh going the wrong direction here like you need that voice right uh you also need somebody can say hey I don't know, man, like that gap looks way farther than I think you think it is, you know, to give you that question to make sure that you're not just giving into your own narrative of greatness. But it's not just that we need the critique of the other. We also need the encouragement of the other to help us navigate the directions that might be meaningful. So when I say the asshole is the <laughs> enemy of the piece, right, yeah, yeah. it's because I'm drawing on Aaron James has an amazing book called assholes. He wrote a great endorsement of camping with Kierkegaard. Appreciate Aaron for doing that. And what he says is the asshole is the person who claims systematic entitlements for themselves in ways that close them off to critique from others. So notice the asshole by definition now thinks their way is not just the best way, but the only way, and any objection, critique, question from another just illustrates the idiocy, irrationality, and obstacle that the other is. So why should we not be an asshole? Because <laughs> if we give in to assholery, we by definition are not interested in embracing risk. We are not interested in navigating direction and we are absolutely unaware that we are walking trails with other people. So the asshole's the problem. And I suggest that the cultural name for assholes is a success logic, a success mm. culture. Mm. It's not that I don't want to be successful. I hope your spirituality adventures is the number one podcast in the world in 2024. But <laughs> It's, it's not just, hey, we do well at the thing we do. That's just excellence. I'm all in on excellence. I think the problem with the way we narrate success is we let it become the thing that makes your voice matter. It's influencer culture, right? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say your voice matters because the stuff you say is so helpful, so constructive, so mm -hmm. poignant. It, it has influenced me. It's different if we say your voice influences me because lots of people listen to your voice. Mm -hmm. Notice that problem, right? Yeah. That forces us to think you are successful. Therefore, I should idolize the life you live. I want to call bullshit on that and invite mm -hmm. people to realize, no, are you okay with the life you're living? Are you okay with who you're becoming? If so, awesome. But remember then humility is a virtue. You can't do this by yourself. And so how is it that your direction is inviting others more effortlessly, more effectively, and more joyfully to live toward the direction they think is worthy of their own finitude? Mm, mm. I like that. So your chapter two is alone in the mountains. And, um, as, as you know, I've spent lots of time alone in the mountains. Um, I'm an introvert, uh, even though I, my professional career is very extroverted, right? But I need it. I need time alone. 
Um, and I thought it was interesting, your chapter two, Alone in the Mountains, how, explain to me the difference between empirical aloneness and ethical aloneness. Help, yeah. help us, help us non-philosophers to understand the difference <laughs> and why that matters and why, why is one really beneficial for us and the other not so beneficial? Yeah. So I, I have been told by people who know me very well that I am also an introvert. Um, people who <laughs> don't know me very well think that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the reason is because uh, I, I don't ever get exhausted by people. So I'm not a traditional introvert where like I have to go recharge because I'm just drained by giving to all. My, my thought is like, I'll go to, you know, give a talk at a school or whatever. And they'll always say, hey, well, we've got you like an hour and a half down before you've got to go give. And I was like, why? Let's go get freaking food. Like to hang out. Like if I'm going to be on, let's go. Right. So uh -huh. I don't get drained yeah. from people. However, when you are fully going with everybody all the time, it can become very tempting to speak without reflecting on what needs said. Because you start um, buying the aura of the fact that people listen to what you say. So for me, part of why I want to celebrate empirical aloneness, empirical just means countable, right? So I am alone in the mountains empirically because there's one of me and there's not 17 other people in this group. Or I'm here with one friend and we're hiking and doing this through hike or whatever. Uh, yesterday I went mountain biking with my son. It was the two of us. And so there was a lot of alone empirically in the mountains, just the two of us at the top of the trail, sitting on the side, catching our breath. Empirical aloneness is important because it does two things. One, it radically changes the pacing of the ordinary. So we no longer become addicted to the inertia of the everyday. This is what COVID did. It wrecked the inertia of the everyday. I had spent 20 plus years as a professional going, 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 working, achieving, accomplishing, hours at the office, give the talk, write the book, do the thing. And all of it, I think, was worth doing. So I don't regret the things I did. But, you know, my son was seven and he looks at me. I talk about this in the book and he said, Dad, I don't want to be a philosopher because they don't spend enough time with their kids. Yeah. And and you think that would have right. you right out like you'd think well that'll change me but it didn't because the inertia of well I've still got seventeen commitments tomorrow and I've still got nineteen office hours the next day mm -hmm. and I've still got fifty two articles I've got to write this year suddenly when COVID hit that inertia that normalcy that I don't have to question broke and now every minute was well how am I going to spend this minute because can't go do what I would do to distract myself from the decision of how to spend it. So I think empirical aloneness, whether that's in the mountains, which is my preference, mm -hmm. or sitting on the beach, which is my wife's, or yeah. it might just be going to a coffee shop, but putting in headphones, right? Mm -hmm. It might just be um, being at church, but changing the row where you sit to force a shift in perspective. So empirical aloneness is the idea that we can become overwhelmed by the pacing of the normal, the obviousness of the everyday. And when we break from that, we remind ourselves that nothing has to be this way. 
Mm. We could do it differently. That's what the outdoors does for me, Mm. right? Now, that's different, though, than ethical aloneness because ethically, we are never alone. We are relational beings. And part of what I'm trying to do here is think well about being by yourself and celebrate why some of this matters for reflective uh, purposiveness and challenge the evil of egoistic libertarianism and individualism that defines so much of our success culture. Yeah. I'll give you a quick example of what that looks like. So it's the it's the <laughs> irony of that or the paradox of that, right? Aloneness, yes. pro- good aloneness actually makes you more connected to people in a, in a healthier yes. way, right? <laughs> so. When I come back from the mountains, I'm better as a husband and father, right? And I wasn't shirking my duties as a professor by heading to the bike park. I was being better at being there for my students and modeling for them that we don't have to define our life in terms of work week office hours. There's different ways to do this thing. And so I I, um, am reminded just this past week, this, this will get me in hot water among many of my FSU friends, I went to Florida State. I'm an alum. I'm a fan. I'm a diehard Seminole. And yet was so embarrassed, so disappointed of the fact that this past week, Florida State played in the Orange Bowl, famous legacy Orange Bowl, played Georgia. Georgia had basically their entire team show up. Georgia's got plenty of people going to the NFL Plenty of people that are thinking about transferring because they're not happy with their playing time. They all, though, said, yeah, this isn't going to win us the national championship. But you know what? We are a team. We've got one more game. Mm -hmm. Let's go play football. What did Florida State do? Those clowns? Basically, like 20 plus of them starters decided, eh, I ain't going to go get hurt. I'm going to make sure that I get my million dollar contract. I'm going into the transfer portal and I don't want to mess up next year's season for some other team. Don't even know who they might be. Who's going to play me enough to go get the million dollar contract. Screw the team. And so we went out with a bunch of first year students. God bless them. They played their hearts out and got beat 63 to three. Like, of course we did because what they decided was their isolation was more important than the relationships that had made possible their freaking identity. Mm. They are only in that place to now go have this future because of the relational togetherness that team had provided. And they said, screw the team. I'm a bounce and get my money. That's what I'm suggesting is the asshole success driven model of our society. Mm-hmm. Hey, it, you know, I used to give co authored papers as a professor. I can't anymore because my students are so individualistically obsessed that they think partnering with, working with, navigating problems with just means my grade's going to go down. You're messing up my future. And what I keep trying to tell my students is wrong. I'm failing you as a human and a professor if I let you graduate from my classes thinking that that kind of egoism is okay as a social being. Screw that. So go to the mountains to realize the mountain's going to break you. 
if you aren't careful. Develop that humility and realize, guess who's going to drag your butt out when things go wrong? It won't be you. It will be volunteers who don't even know you who are getting you off that mountain and saving your life. Think about that as a metaphor for social existence. If we would stop being so individualistically ego-driven and started saying, hey, I can be concerned about the run that I'm on. I, I can't ride the bike for my son. When he goes off that drop, my heart's like, ah, right? Like he's got to navigate it on his own, but you better believe I'm there to help him think about how can we do this most effectively? And then I'm there to fist bump him at the bottom and said, dude, I'm proud of you, right? And even if he had walked away from all of the drops and said, I can't do this, I'm just as proud of you because it's not about the accomplishment. It's about the person that you're becoming. So be alone so that you realize you aren't God. Then realize that because you aren't God, you are in this condition with everybody else. Now go be better at that. Good stuff. Good stuff. So let's see here on being known and then your, uh, your chapter six, send yeah. it. Um, yeah. There's these virtues that you keep revisiting almost in every chapter. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me is, you know, I've been in the recovery community for four and a half years now, Aaron. And like, I would say that my four things that I've really grabbed hold of, in this recovery journey of mine have been humility, vulnerability, honesty, and gratitude. And that, that comes right out of 12 step community recovery community stuff. I mean, those are foundational to, you know, living a quote sober life. Right. right. And what's right. fascinating to me is it's true. You know, as I got into the recovery program um, it's just like, I, I started thinking like everybody needs this stuff, you know? So I thought it was so cool as I was reading your book is how you, like you kept hammering away at these core virtues, not even from an addiction, so to speak. But if you think about our cultural's view of success and how you've critiqued the, the, the success, the society, you know, I'm thinking back at like Chris McCandless's, you know, mm -hmm. critique of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, society, you know, yeah. the society, you know, yeah. that kind of the throw and the, you know, critique of society, you know, you've, you, you're fitting well into that thing, but you, you keep drawing us back to, and you said humility, hospitality, and gratitude and your, and your on being known, you talked about the connection between vulnerability and relationality, but then in chapter six, this, uh, Humility, hospitality, gratitude. So these core virtues um, are, are, I love the way you kept hammering those. And they're critical to living and answering this question, like, what is, what is worthy of your finitude? How do, these, how do these virtues that you've highlighted so well, humility, hospitality, gratitude, vulnerability, how does that help us live this, a life worthy of our finitude? Yeah. So uh, the reason that I talk about them as virtues in the book, uh, you know, for the philosophers out there, there are technical reasons related to a kind of Aristotelian inheritance and thinking about different models of ethical theory. But for me, the reason I talk about virtues 
is because we tend to think about virtues as lived practices that we're trying to get better at, right? Instead of just do this thing. So it's not just that I have to tell the truth. It's, am I cultivating honesty, <laughs> right? So part of why I talk about these as virtues is to connect to faithfulness as this sort of propulsive directional commitment rather than box checking kinds of to-do lists for moral life. And the way I put it, I think in the book is that there is no algorithm for right living, right? There is no math problem that's <laughs> going to tell us now you're good. And the reason that I landed on these and they keep showing up, you're right, kind of uh, repeatedly in the book <laughs> is because I, I think that one of the virtues of virtue talk is that it gets us away from thinking that I'm preaching to you how to now go live. I don't know how to tell you to go live, but however you decide to live, like you best not be an asshole because now you're screwing up being human, <laughs> right? So that doesn't mean that I'm telling you to go start a company or go to grad school or become a mechanic or get married or become a pastor. Like, I don't know. And at some level, my concern is really low with the specificity of the direction that you think is worth your life. What matters is, are you engaging that direction, recognizing that there are other options? No one is forcing this, right? Two, are you recognizing that you will only ever be excellent, you'll only ever be virtuous when you start inviting others to walk with you? So I say in the book somewhere that the trail you walk, I find less interesting than with whom you choose to walk, mm -hmm. right? And then finally, so that's humility, hospitality, then gratitude is recognizing things didn't even have to be this way. <laughs> and this way, I mean, we could have been the kinds of beings for whom agency is not the case. Mm. We could have been the kinds of beings who um, find ourselves so wrecked by determinant structures that we are unable to remind ourselves that structures can change. So gratitude can be different things for different people. It can be the sense of wonder that I feel when I'm sitting in a mountain stream. It can be the sense of uh, joy that happens, you know, when your kid looks up at you and smiles. Um, it, it could be the fact that your favorite song plays on that day you're having the horrible Monday of all Mondays. And yet, man, like that new MXPX track just dropped about that's right. And you're like, God, that's good though. Right. So gratitude is simply that we find ourselves in an existence where joy breaks through like tender roots in a rocky soil. And for me, this was so palpable in the COVID pandemic with Italians leaning out of their windows, singing to each other at whatever, 7 PM. And it's like, my gosh, the, Thank you, not for singing, but thank you that we are the kinds of people who sing in pandemics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I love that that is true about us. And so I should say that as I kind of think about these virtues, I don't want anybody to think that this book is some preachy book from atop the mountain telling the pedants where to go. That's not this book. This is a book talking about my own frustration, my own failure, my own flaws, and the hopes I have for how to maybe get better at this moving forward. 
And I'm trying to encourage people into that by saying, if you cultivate these virtues, it doesn't guarantee anything other than you will probably be less disappointed with the self you're becoming. Still might be frustrated about the job situation, still might be annoyed at, you know, the the playlist at the stupid corporate conglomerate radio station, whatever. But you're probably less disappointed because you know that, you know what, I'm not an asshole and I'm doing the best I can to be the kind of person that I would want people to be okay with me being. So when I suggest that as the, the model, the goal, I'm not holding myself up as an example. I'm simply saying, hey, I I am with the rest of you trying to do the best I can to be a little bit less of an asshole tomorrow than I am today. And so the way that I sometimes think about this is consider the things that are your goals in life. We tend to talk about them almost always. My goodness, in colleges, we're horrible about this, right? You know, you want to graduate, get to that med school, get this internship, go to that job, et cetera. But what if instead of that, we started saying things like, at what day would you check the box of be a good parent? All right, did it on a Tuesday. I'm out like George Costanza. Thank you and good night, right? I mean, what day is it that you are a good neighbor? Well, I took food to that shut-in across the street. I'm out. Screw her from here on out. Like, notice it doesn't make any sense to think about relational existence as a once and for all box checking thing. You're the worst parent Mm. if you leave your family on a Wednesday because you were the best on a Tuesday. Mm. You're the worst neighbor if you take that food and say, oh, it's so wonderful. Don't ever call me again because I don't want to feel bad. Right now, I've won this game. Mm. Like, you're, you're horrible at this. Like, think about being a good citizen. Well, I voted when I turned 18. I'm out. Screw democracy, y'all. Like, you are bad at this. Mm. So what I'm trying to suggest is humility, hospitality, gratitude, vulnerability, and relationality. These are the kinds of things that name the sorts of goals that are not once and for all kinds of things. And if we think more about those, maybe we will start like the man who came to me at a talk recently. And he said, I was 78, 79 years old, whatever. And he said, I just want to thank you for what you said. He said. I want a copy of the book and I want one for all my grandkids. He said, because when I retired, I have felt every single day like my life was over. I was useless and I was an obstacle for the human kind. Like, I, I, I don't even know why I get out of bed. He said, everything you've just said reminded me because faithfulness is not something that is done when we retire. Mm. And he said, I want my grandkids to know that so they don't work their whole life thinking retirement is the goal. The goal is not to suck as a human. And so that's what I'm trying to do and invite people into. And I can't tell them how to do it. I'm just giving them some ideas of typically the kinds of virtues, the kinds of practices, the kinds of orientations that will maximally facilitate the likelihood that we suck a little less. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So process and becoming these and embracing the kinds of virtues that help us do that well, despite its frustration, despite its complications, despite its risks. Right. And you're trying to get us to dig into our, through the silence and through the aloneness, we're trying to listen to the voice, the calling, 
Yeah. The calling, the voice of love, yeah. the voice of calling. Yeah. How does that come? How do we find that sense of the thing that moves us in love, yeah. that creates choices, that creates an obedience to a direction that um, also involves a sense of calling and that, and then following that, that sense of the, that combination of love choices, calling and, a, and an obedient track to fulfill, to, to follow that voice, to yeah. hear that calling um, that, that is at the core of this existential uh, philosophical way to live, isn't it? That yeah. that's, that's part of what you're driving at here over and over again is this, an, an examined life. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the society trap of like, you know, the, the likes, the influencers, the society, the, you name it, the, you know, capitalistic, whatever this or that, you know, you could name all of the, the, the ways that society tries to shape and direct us that can almost become an addiction of itself. If we want to get sober, <laughs> <laughs> from that addiction, yep. we have to visit these virtues that you're highlighting. But to talk a little bit about love and calling, that, that kind of chapter yeah. five and seven is what I'm thinking of right. here a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate the question. So <clears throat> when we think about calling um, in life right now, I mean, it, there's an institute at my university, the Center for Calling, there's centers for vocation and calling all over the country. And I think these are really important uh, because basically we have confused in our world today um, vocation with job. And, you know, we even talk about this, right? You go to a vocational school. Well, you're just getting trained to go be a mechanic or a, a salesman or whatever, right? And if we go back to the Latin vocatio, vocatio just means to call. And so the idea of thinking about the vocation of my life as involving a variety of jobs, but not defined by that is part of what I'm trying to encourage. And this is important, I think, because to a person, the students that I work with, and they're very talented and very impressive, but I've had thousands of students over the years and th they have been led to believe by their parents, by their professors, by the administrators, the admissions counselors, by their friends, by their culture, by their bosses, right? Across the board, they've been led to believe everything we do in life has a very particular kind of outcome target which effectively looks a little bit like the end of a Hallmark movie for all of us, right? I admit I'm kind of a sucker for some Hallmark movies at Christmas time, but what that means is we're going to find love, find fulfillment, find happiness, find success, and it's usually gonna be in our late 20s and early 30s and we're going to be able to actually give a very scripted account of what it will involve because it's almost always going to involve a very particular capitalistically defined material set of outcomes. 
and a very particular power structure defined set of relationships. In other words, we have gotten what we set out to do and worked so hard to become if at whatever, 32, I've got the Porsche in the garage, the typically heterosexual relationship where I, as white asshole man, am controlling my domain in ways that let my voice influence others. But I do this in a kind enough way that I keep getting asked to be on boards and lead things so that the Hallmark movie doesn't kind of go south at the end, right? Now, look, I have no problem with people who have Porsches in the garage, right? Okay, God bless them, whatever. I am a heterosexual. I don't think that's inherently bad. I am also a white male. I don't think that necessarily propels me into a particular kind of vice. I do think, however, that the privileges that identify my social location invite vice to become invisible when mm. enacted mm. in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and we don't live in a society that allows that to be something we can think through in productive ways that actually flourish and foster social agreement. What it does is it's, it's presented either as a very particular kind of critique that then creates 47% of the country as a problem to be overcome, or it's presented as a narrative of those other 47% who don't understand how things really work. And now you've got your division with politics, your division with society, like all of that starts emerging. And if we would instead say, look, these are hard issues and it's complicated and privilege is almost always something that leads to disastrous outcomes in individual and social ways. However, what if we stopped confusing my calling with that hallmark ending and instead start saying, look, I'm called by every other that I encounter to recognize their moral dignity. They call to me when I pass them on the road because I could swerve my car and just hit that biker. But the fact that I don't is not just because I don't want to get locked up. It's because I see that person as having space <laughs> that I should be able to navigate and work with. So my influ or my, my uh, interest in calling is because I'm trying to invite us to rethink what it looks like to be called more broadly than here's the job I want at 30. Here's the relationship I want to put on Instagram. And instead say, well, may maybe um, realizing that calling is more about, am I okay to pass the mic to someone who has historically not been able to speak? Maybe that calling overrides the logistical outcomes that I have intertwined with why I'm paying tuition at a really expensive college. Like somehow we can see these dynamics more effectively, I think. And I think existential philosophy invites us to do that. And for what it's worth, make it practical, man, like if, if you go camping often, it is nearly impossible 
to think that you are invulnerable and the world is yours. Because I don't care how good a camper you are, eventually, like, you know, your back's going to start giving you trouble if you're sleeping without a good mat. And you're like, man, I need a good mat. I have an Xped 10, which I love. And it's like better than my mattress at home. And then I start thinking, but that thing was, was like say, that, that cheating. That's cheating, man. I'm just kidding. See, and this, it, <laughs> it's like $300 and it's way too heavy to take on a through hike. And, but then I think, but wait a minute, if I'm inviting people to go camping, but I'm not called to pay attention to the fact that a lot of people can't afford the gear it takes to go do it. Yeah. Now I have to see the injustice that defines the world that I've been okay with. Right. And that's why calling is about not some you know justice agenda. I'm not trying to be a social justice warrior in the book or anything. I am trying to say, hey, if you're humble, hospitable, and gracious, and you're relationally vulnerable, instead of seeing these things as like obstacles to ignore, we instead say, look, racism is a problem for a bunch of reasons, but it's a problem because it means that the flexibility, the agency that I have as a white person, if that's something that is not the case for some other people, well, then the world that I'm navigating is one that I am called to make different, not because I'm white, but because I'm part of the human culture. I'm part of this thing. And that's where I'm trying to suggest we can't go camping and be ethically alone. Because mm -hmm. if I go camping and I'm ethically alone, I can forget the fact, well, not, not everybody gets to have the cool Toyota that's lifted and able to get on these off-road trails. Well, yesterday I went biking with my son. Dude, we were riding on like $9,000 of equipment yesterday, <laughs> right? And I'm blessed and grateful that I am able to make that happen for my, my son. But that's not okay if we are in a world where then that's a thing I'm not called to see also as a kind of moral problem, mm -hmm. given the society where what, you know, thousands of kids will die this year from malnutrition. Like it's gotta be that the call to love is not just claptrap about, so let's listen to some really good, you know, John Lennon while we're in the mountains. It's a call to say, you are called by the face of each and every other. The reason you don't throw trash on the trail is you are seeing the call of the face of future generations walking that trail. The mm. reason that I don't hit that biker is I see that biker's face as meaningful, even if I don't know that person. And man, think about how different our world could be if we started thinking that this flourishing were something to be called toward in community without having to then decide for them what their direction must look like. And that's where the flexibility, the freedom yeah. is something I think is really, really powerful. That's a long answer. I'm sorry. It, uh, it, right. Calling in the, in the book, calling is a technical thing. And mm -hmm. so to make it not technical, right. we have to kind of situate it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah so um, I'm going to have one more question and then kind of wrap up here. But um, <clears throat> I was so in chapter eight, of course, chapter 10, you know, really this, this, this whole thing that you've run through is this question, what is worthy of your finitude? And of course, part of 
our finitude is facing death, right? So your your chapter 10 kind of talks about that. But I, I thought it was interesting. Chapter 8, you talked about um, existential hope, eschatological hope. And I'm, I'm kind of, and I'm wanting to kind of place those two things alongside chapter 10. Yeah. With facing death and your own finitude. Yeah. How do those yeah. <clears throat> play to existential, existential hope and eschatological hope? How do those yeah. play into this, how we face our finitude? So uh, this book, when I wrote it, I, I, did not see something about it that one of my friends pointed out. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I'm going to claim that was intentional. The The book itself has a kind of arc to it, um, which again, I did not really pick up on. <clears throat> but the chapter that is hands down, the the most difficult chapter is this, this chapter on hope it's called Of God and Trout Fishing. And what I tried to do in that chapter is think about different models of hope and why it matters to living a life well lived. But it's interesting. I work up to that chapter as if the like top of the peak, like the hardest climb is right at the top, right? Because your legs are sore and your lungs are burning. And then we kind of go down the mountain, which is now having done this intellectual work. Now let's sort of see what it looks like to get back to the truck together. And so that arc of the story that the difficulty came at that very moment, I had no idea that was going to be on purpose. But if I ever say in interviews that I did, it's because I told my buddy I'm going to act like it because, man, that was smart. So the three versions of hope I talk about are super technical, but they're not technically deployed in the book, I think, in ways that are, are off putting, I hope. But I'll, I'll explain them super quick. We have three different options. We can be hopeful for a specific outcome tomorrow. This I call existential hope. We could simply call this objective hope, right? I have hope for an object. I want that Porsche. I want that job. And for what it's worth, awesome. If we don't have objective hope, our lives don't have any direction because we don't have any logistics that are telling us how then to spend our time, right? So if you really want to be a college football coach, okay, well, maybe then, you know, you should learn the game of football. So I'm fine with objective hope, existential hope. But if that's the only hope we have, then our life again is defined by that success problem of obtaining or failure. So I suggest that in addition to this objective hope, we have a subjective hope. This is existential hope. And this is the idea that you have hope for tomorrow, right? That that the sheer fact that we're talking, and you said at the beginning, well, the podcast will air tomorrow, is we understand that we are the kinds of beings who are moving into a present that is not yet. And that trajectory, my son today said, hey, can we invite my friend over to have a sleepover tomorrow? I want to go to the skate park. Like the objective version of that is, skate park tomorrow. We can check that box. The subjective part is that he understands his existence as one that has a temporal trajectory. Eschatological hope is the hope that I think um, is not unique to religious, but it's certainly found in a kind of religious existence. And it says, we already today live toward what is constitutively not yet the case. 
this already not yet structure. So my example is fishing. Objectively, I hope to catch the trophy brown trout. Subjectively, I hope to go fishing tomorrow and next week and get some new waders and patch the hole in my boots so that I can keep like all of that being trajectoried forward toward being somebody who is fishing tomorrow. But then I'm also not defined by catching that fish. Like that's not ultimately what determines me. What determines me eschatologically is to live into the hope today to be a fisherman such that tomorrow I keep fishing. Going back to that 80-year-old on the stream at the end of a river runs through it, I want to be that guy, right? And the only way that I be that guy is not to think that I am that guy on a Tuesday when I'm 80, but to at 80 keep fishing. And Mm -hmm. so if I think the goal is to catch the brown trout – check the box, hang up the, you know, fishing rods. Mm-hmm. I, I've missed the point. My wife, in fact, um, would get frustrated if I say this, but like she once really, really, really wanted to run a half marathon. And I was very proud of her. I've never done that. I think it's really cool. So she did, she trained, she did it. She put the 13.1 sticker on the back of the car and hung up her shoes. Like I'm out. I will never run again. And I get it. That's fine. It's not a vice. But think about that if that's how we approach life, right? The people that I want to be are the people who say, no, we run because running is the kind of thing that I do now because it's what I'm not yet. Like I I may run -er in that here and not yet way, right? I want to today live for justice because justice is not yet obtained. So when I think about that in light of death, the way I put it is, we are called to do more than make a mark. We are called to leave a legacy. And the legacy that we leave, I think, is so much more profound when we stop thinking about all the things we've done and instead think about the person that I am always becoming. Is that the kind of person that I want other people to be able to look to and yeah. say, you know what? Yeah, like, like I'm okay with that. And if so, then we get to say about ourselves, I'm okay with who I'm becoming. Mm. Even if things go sideways, I'm still okay, right? It's the it's well with my soul idea. Storms are billowing, stuff's going bad, but I'm my soul's good. Like, I'm okay. Mm. And can we be okay when things aren't? And in some ways, you mentioned the 12-step program, which I have not gone through, but it's interesting. This morning, I gave an interview to a, a TV station here in town, and the people who did the segment before me were from the local AA community, talking mm. about AA resources into the new year, yeah. right? Which I thought yeah. was fantastic. And it was so cool because they did this interview with them, and everything they were talking about sounded like the stuff I was going to get up and talk about, but it was because they are talking about wholeness, integrity, relationships, right? right? You can't do it by yourself. And so when we take seriously that aging and death are real, we maybe can start recognizing that hope is not something defeated by age. Mm. Certain objective hopes become less plausible, (laughs) right? But the subjective hope ain't dead yet. Get up, get out, do what you can do, right? right? Eschatological hope, even when I'm gone, 
was I someone who lived a life that invited people I will never meet to inherit a world that was less unjust, less cruel, less asshole, less driven mm -hmm. by a success model? That's up to me. And so I'm not trying to check that box and achieve it. I am trying to have lived a life faithful to that as what I hope for the future. And if I live today, that hope for the future, yeah. I think I've done the best I can with the life I've been given. Interesting. Well, good stuff. I, essentially <clears throat> another community, I'm, I'm in a two-year training with uh, Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield in mindful meditation. Mm. And what's fascinating is, you know, like if I think about the, like I grew up, you know, the vineyard was a big part of my life. I was a vineyard pastor for 30 years and George Eldon Ladd and N.T. Wright were big theologians. They, George Eldon Ladd was hammered the, the already and the not yet, the presence yeah. of the kingdom now, the presence yeah. of the kingdom future. The title of one of his books is The Presence of the Future. Mm. And I was, I was thinking about that theologically, but then I thought about that from the recovery world. And then I, and then mindful meditation has all these same values are in the mindful meditation world and the, right. the, 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 the focus on that meditation, aloneness, presence, checking in with your body, your mind, your emotions, all yep. the crap, the trauma, everything. Yep. But, but, but in that moment, receiving the fullness of presence of that and gratitude and humility and vulnerability yep. and the the future is present now if we're li living into, I think that's a phrase that you've used, living into yeah. the kind of person that we want to be, that risk with direction. So beautiful. That's right. Well, well we've run out it. of time, uh, Aaron, but man. Well, hey, man, I this has been what, so fun. I, I hope oh, we are able to mountain bike one day together. I, would enjoy I can't freaking wait. Uh, and, and I will say, since you asked me earlier um, to the, the paid um, version that we did and to anybody listening who's not a paid subscriber, support Spirituality Ventures doing important work, you get access to that bonus content. Um, but a book that I didn't mention then that I'll mention now in light of the mindfulness stuff, because I think lots of people could benefit from it. It's simply called Beguiled by Beauty by a friend of mine mm -hmm. named Wendy Farley. She's a, a unbelievably impressive queer feminist theologian. And the whole book is about how cultivating contemplation can invite a life of compassion. And so mm -hmm. she is a hiker. She is a outdoors woman, uh, but she's the kind of person who I think invites that kind of peacefulness in ways that unfortunately uh, I think I, I invite everybody to be like super stoked and ready to go jump off stuff. She invites us to like slow down and take in the view. And so I would absolutely recommend her work uh, on that front. I'll have to check that out. That's good stuff. Yeah. So folks, uh, Camping with Kierkegaard, I want to encourage you to uh, pick this book up. What? And then your YouTube channel is, tell that again. Yeah, my YouTube channel is Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. Um, I actually just started a Substack, which I also really am excited about. Uh, it's jaronsimmons.substack.com, but it's simply called Philosophy in the Wild. And so okay. people who want to think with me, Substack would be probably the, the easiest way to do that. You can find all of the links to my YouTube, to my Substack, uh, links to the book, interviews I've done, podcasts about it is all available at my website, jaronsimmons.com. 
And so sure. people can also reach out to me, uh, anybody who's interested in me speaking at their event or doing a book group with them or whatever. All of that information is there. JaronSimmons.com would love to connect with folks at Substack, YouTube, Instagram, anywhere else. I, I, I'm thrilled to be part of a community thinking well, living well, and doing so the best we can while uh, getting to the outdoors. I have to get you to Kansas City. Love it. Let's make yeah. it happen, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures. Glad that you connected with us. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. And uh, hope to see you on the trail. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com. Sign up for one of our monthly supports and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I want to encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments. And go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.